Hey, everybody, it's Ryan Ripley. Wanted to get a new offering in front of you as soon as possible, evidence-based leadership. And so, as you all know, Todd Miller, myself, and Will Seeley, we're big on evidence-based management. We want to apply it to the leadership space. We all know that modern managers face complex challenges every day. You're juggling a lot of needs, your direct reports, your stakeholders, your customers, they all need constant attention. What we want to do is help you manage that. We want you to use information and data to make good decisions around all of these areas so that we're delivering the right thing at the right time for the right customer. And we know that we're doing that because we're using data and evidence to validate all the things that we're doing. And not only that, we're not just looking at value, but we're looking at our capabilities as an organization. Can we deliver on time? Can we innovate effectively? Do we have too much tech debt? Do we have too many things in process? Are we unable to deliver when the market demands that we do? We look at all of these things with evidence-based management. We merge that into a leadership uh, mindset and lens, and we enable you to make new and better decisions repeatedly based off of the data that you're collecting within your organization. It's exciting stuff. We hope you can join us. Visit agileforhumans.com forward slash EBL course. Join us in one of these offerings. We think you're going to love it. Hope you can join us. Use Agile for Humans, the number four to take another 15% off of this course. And uh, we can't wait to see you there. Agile for Humans is brought to you by Audible.com. Get one free audiobook and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash agile. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player, including Scrum, The Art of Doing Twice the Work in Half the Time by Jeff Sutherland, and Crucial Conversations by Carrie Patterson. Visit www.audibletrial.com forward slash agile to enjoy your free audiobook today. Processes and tools dominate today's agile discussions, but we are devoted to the individuals and interactions that make it work. From the beginner to the veteran practitioner, we have something for you. Welcome to Agile for Humans. And we're back. It's another episode of Agile for Humans. I'm your host, Ryan Ripley. Joining me today, very special guest, Vasco Duarte. Vasco, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Hey, thank you for joining me. I'm very excited to talk to you about a very fun topic, the no estimates topic. And first of all, before we get too deep into this, just want to say congratulations on the release of your book. It looks like it's been wildly successful from all indications online and on Twitter. A lot of great feedback coming in. And it just it looks like you did the the release in a really neat way with different tiers and interviews and and options. And just wanted to make sure I told you congratulations up front because it, it looks like you've done something really cool in the uh, the self-publishing world and that it's just been wildly successful. Well, thank you very much. It's been uh, quite a ride. I mean, the book has been written for a year now, but only now is available for sale because of all of those tiers, as you said, because I wanted to go deeper and allow people to understand that uh, this is more than what I could write in a book. So I actually have nine video interviews that are published with the book and two mini books about specific topics that other authors contributed. So I'm really happy with the with the breadth of topics that we've covered in that project. Yeah, it, it is really neat. I believe it's noestimatesbook.com and is where people can go to get more information about uh, that offering and, and the book and the other videos. Is that right? 
The, that's correct. And uh, if people sign up, they'll get the first chapter of the book immediately. And as usual, I will be sending a few uh, giveaways to, to the people who sign up to the mailing list. The next one, which I'm, I'm sure we will talk about today, is a report compiled on the actual track record of estimation in the software industry. Oh, I'm sure that will set off some uh, interesting discussions as well. For the listeners, I'll, I'll be sure to get a link to Vasco's blog, book, website, all of that, so that you can go out and find well, more information about the No Estimates book. I was very fortunate. Vasco was very gracious and let me be a, a beta reviewer. It's an excellent book. Uh, really enjoyed getting to see the, the early peak and uh, really excited for what this book could turn into later on. So we'll get the link in the show notes and... Uh, in case you're interested in taking a look at it. So Vasco, this is a, an interesting topic. So the no estimates hashtag is a, a wild and varied discussion on Twitter. A lot of interesting characters out there. There's probably a lot of people listening right now that don't follow it as closely as we do. Maybe we could take a step back and just start, let's start at the beginning. What problem in your mind is no estimates seeking to solve? Well, that's a great question question, Ryan, and um, I can't help but go back to my story of no estimates. And it, this started about 2005. And I my my boss called me into the into the room and we were talking and uh, I, I really thought I had discovered something. And the people that have been following the debate probably have seen some of my presentations about that topic, which is that actually story points don't add any value to the predictability of the team. I discovered that actually by just counting the number of stories, we were pretty accurate and we d didn't need to spend that much time estimating the stories that we were going to develop. And of course, then uh, consequently trying to figure out all of the stories up front and building the, the, the good old backlog like we used to do. Uh, but what happened at that point, and, and that really informed also what I did next, was that my boss sat me down, looked me dead serious in the eye and said, Vasco, please don't tell this to anyone. No one will ever believe you. <laughs> yeah, it's a, uh, and even for someone like, like myself, so I've been in the Agile community for a number of years, very interested in the topics. And, you know, ever since Kent Beck released his Extreme Programming Explained, I've been hooked, you know, beautiful book. It, it really was the the great case for me. But even when, you know, with that much background, when I saw, initially saw the argument, and I think it was Neil Killick who wrote about it quite a bit on his blog, his slicing heuristic lends itself to the idea that you count stories as well. I struggled with this idea. So I, I totally understand your boss's viewpoint there because it does take a while to wrap your head around the idea that counting stories and looking at throughput is just as effective as story points. In fact, probably more effective. Yeah. So from the point of view of knowing when you're going to be done with a particular story or feature or even epic, depending on how many levels of, uh, you know, abstraction you have in your backlog, uh, counting number of stories is, is pretty darn accurate. It's so accurate that it's actually very hard to get it better. I, I was reading up on some data from Steve McConnell's Demystifying the Black Art of Estimation book, and he says that really, really great companies are trying to improve their estimates so that they can go from a 10% error margin to a 5% error margin. Well, let me tell you this. We have examples in some of my presentations and in the database of uh, projects that I've collected for the No Estimates projects, we have examples of being five sprints into a 20 sprint project. 
and being less than 5% off the actual delivery number. So when, when we hear about estimation being so valuable and so important, when I look at the data, uh, and, and that's what scared my boss uh, back then, when I look at the data, I don't see any benefit of estimation. And, when, and I, was a, I used to be a traditional project manager, and when you're taught from very early days that estimation is one of the key activities when you're running a software project, and then suddenly someone like me, who sounds crazy and says that, you know, estimates are really, really just waste. That was actually one of my early hashtags, the est waste hashtag. People will look at you and say, no, 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 you're crazy. You're just nuts. That can never happen. And, and by the way, estimation has all of these positive side effects that, by the way, we never talked about. But now because we're challenging it, we try to find these positive side effects of estimation. And to be honest, I wasn't sure about this either. When I started talking about this in 2005, uh, after that talk with my boss, I actually went back into the closet. I was doing the stuff I said I would do, but I was not talking about it. And it was in 2012, the first time that I had a public conference talk about no estimates. It took me a while to get, get over that. Even for me, it took me a while to actually be so convinced of this that I could talk about it publicly in conferences, do workshops, and even write books about it. Yeah, and that's something that definitely comes across in the videos and in the book is that this is a well-thought-out uh, idea that, that you and others have, have been working on. So that certainly shines through. I want to talk about the example you just gave, though. So you said that a less than 5% error rate, five sprints into a 20-sprint project. So someone out there might be asking themselves, and it's a question that I think a lot of people would ask who may not be as familiar with, the, with these ideas as we are, how do you know it's a 20-sprint project up front if you're not doing estimation? Yeah, so I'm talking about data that I have collected from projects in the past. So I'm using data that we have to do what you would call a retro projection. So projecting from data that I already have into a future that has already happened, right? So I'm yep. basically validating that the, the method works. For me, actually, it, it's not so important that the project be 20 or 21 or 25 sprints because all of my conversation around no estimates is about finding the value. It's about discovering what is valuable right here, right now, and testing it. I very often say that instead of spending time estimating cost and duration, we should be spending time estimating value and then testing for it. You know, a la lean startup, that's the whole idea, right? Build, measure, learn. And that idea is uh, based on my experience with products that actually needed to be sold for my company to survive. I didn't have the luxury to work in projects that were paid up front. Uh, I had to work with projects that they had to be successful in the market, otherwise I wouldn't have a job. And that was uh, something that fundamentally affected the way I saw software development projects. So for me, software development projects are a search for value. I am looking for value. I, I'm not trying to complete a predetermined list of features. Of course, you might have a good idea of where you're going. And uh, uh, techniques like story mapping or impact mapping by Jeff Patton and Goiko Adzic, respectively, are great ways to explore the stories, the features, the epics that we need to deliver. But my goal is to find value. And when you're searching for value, when you're searching for something that is valuable for your customers, for your stakeholders... 
at that point, the estimation is not a big problem. Actually, I, I very often say that for me, we know pretty much what we are going to deliver in the next one month, two months, six months, whatever. How much, how much money do you have or how long is your market willing to, waiting, uh, willing to wait for you? That's really the key question. For me, we should be talking about what should we deliver in the time that we have available? Because that's, that's my formation. I've worked with products that needed to be out in the market for me to continue to have a job. So a question that, that gets asked pretty often on, on the hashtag and in blog posts and in blog comments is, you know, we all agree that value is, is the ultimate goal, and I certainly agree with that as well. But if I have three competing ideas, am I just estimating value and doesn't cost and duration play into the decision to pick one of those three projects to do? Yeah, the ABC question, as I normally call it, and that's a very common and valid question. I mean, to be honest, obviously, if that's what we have to decide, then we have to consider those. And in, in a case where you are not allowed to experiment, where you are not allowed to learn, where you have to know everything up front, then you have no option but to speculate about the cost of a particular one of those, you know, ABCs. However, let me tell you a story. I was working with a client. And uh, the, that particular client, you know, pretty successful e-commerce client, they had uh, one particular team was super disappointed, super demotivated with what was going on because they basically had a huge backlog of small changes that are coming top down, that are, you know, well-intentioned, that have really a good process to be approved and all of that. The governance was well in place. There was no problem with governance. But what was coming out was small things that needed to be improved. And many of those, they had hundreds of items in the backlog. So the product owner called timeout and said, okay, for the next sprint, let's just do what he called an innovation sprint. Good. So the team goes off. They think about an idea. And we started with the product owner by exploring what are our business goals. And we selected one business goal specifically, which was to increase conversion in that particular case. And we looked at, what are the options that we have in order to increase conversion? We used impact mapping, the technique by Goiko Adzic, and finally decided on one experiment. The experiment was share on Facebook. And the idea would be that we would generate traffic, we would get the product out there, and we'd get more people to see the product and eventually increase the sales. Well, it, at some point, somebody suggested, hey, but I also have another use case. It's, it's pretty similar. It's not the same. It's share by email because... I'm on the bus, I'm looking at the catalog, and then I don't want to buy it on my mobile phone. I want to buy it when I go home. So that was the story. We started implementing it two weeks after we started. It went live. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't everything we wanted it to be, but we gave ourselves a time box because that's all we had. We had one sprint to get it live, and it went live. Two days after it went live, it started to generate revenues, two days. And that was the email feature, not the share on Facebook feature. So what the team did is that they just invested a little bit more time, a few hours here and there, and the second sprint came in, they did a few improvements. And I received an email a few weeks ago, uh, for the first seven months of the year, they had generated 250,000 in revenue just out of that one feature, a feature that came out of an innovation sprint, which wasn't planned, which didn't go through the whole governance chain, which wasn't, you know, scrutinized by the whole product management team. It was one idea, two weeks, and then a few improvements. And that feature is generating at about half a million per year. That's huge 
compared to the investment that we made. We made an investment of less than 30,000. So when we talk about value, I'm talking about things that are possible to do. And we, obviously, we can't always apply the same techniques I just described to all environments, but we can apply some techniques to those environments that will get us closer to that build, measure, learn, focus on value that I'm talking about. And when we are able to deliver value on a regular basis, then the next question is, what value should we be delivering next? Not when will we be able to deliver these 150 features? So when you're working in this kind of manner, and I, again, definitely agree that, that these small bets over, over multiple sprints certainly do pay off. But when you have larger organizational issues such as training, marketing, finance, all of these other teams that need to be in sync with you, you know, what are the techniques that you've used or the, what are the, some of the experiences that you've had in making sure that the business is, is in sync and, and aligned with, with the IT teams and the, and the agile teams as they deliver all of this value? That's a very good question and a question that I also get a lot, which is basically uh, the dependencies question, as I call it, which is, okay, we have these dependencies, we have marketing, you know, we have distribution and so on. You know, we have to give them a date. And, you know, let me, how I worked, how I used to work, I don't work in that company anymore, but I worked in a consumer software company. Um, and we didn't really have the luxury of deciding when the product was to come out. It was just a, not an option for us. We had the Christmas market, which was about one third of our annual revenue. So in about four weeks, we generated 33% of all of our income for that year. We didn't really have a choice, right? For us, the dates were given. And actually, the marketing people told us this is when we need to have the features that we are going to put in the box. And the distribution people told us this is when we need to have the master CD burn so that we can ship it in the box. This is when we need to have the website available. This is when we need to have the e-commerce the builds available. And all of that was decided up front. We didn't really have a choice. So for us, it was extremely important under the risk of losing large percentage of revenue to be on time. And, and here may be one of the biggest differences between what I call no estimates and what some people think no estimates is. For me, no estimates is about making concrete, relevant business decisions based on data, not on guesswork, right? And that's why I started, in, in, in my case, counting the number of stories and then projecting that based on the backlog that we had to know what would be available at a particular point in time. And that's how I got started. Later on, I focused more on, on valuable work, so focusing on discovering value and bringing that up front so that it would be ready in the project before going out. So not to be close to the release date, because you, as we all know, things that are to be delivered close to the release date can easily be lost because we're late or because we're, we have quality problems or whatever. So that's what I started to do. I started to just do very, very simple data uh, manipulation. So I, I put the data in, into a spreadsheet. I projected it. I calculated my margins and I showed that to the stakeholders. And we, we got to the point where we were canceling you know, million dollar projects based on that data because we, we got through the process of trusting the data. And I think that this is one of the key uh, points in the no estimates arguments is that some people believe that estimates are true. Some people believe that estimates are reliable, but they aren't. I mean, we have data 
re regarding this. So let me just give you very, very uh, short overview of the data that I, sh I show in some of my presentations. 2011, the average time overrun for projects, according to the chaos report, was 63%. Now, some people will say, oh, chaos report, it's not reliable, not good science, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so let's look at other sources. Gartner, survey of project failure in 2012, 20 to 28% of projects fail. And I don't mean be late. I mean, like, fail totally. Zero value out of those projects. 20 to 28%. And here's the, the, the kicker, the, the stat that really got me thinking. 17%, 1-7% of large IT projects go so badly that they can threaten the very existence of the company where they are executed. And this is the thing that I wanted to make as an argument here, as, as a point of honor. We as an industry are not able to estimate well. I mean, of course, some people will be good, fine, good for them. But we as an industry are not able. And if we want to be ethical and responsible about our industry, we have to find alternatives that work for us as an industry, not for some enlightened geniuses that can do something that nobody else can do, because that's fine, that's good for them. And of course, they are, you know, welcome to sell their wares and sell their ideas like Steve McConnell does. He has very good stuff to share with people. But Steve McConnell is not going to change the industry. We need to find a solution for our industry that scales to the whole industry, something that people can start using immediately and can bring a much better quality of deliverables, a much better focus on value to our industry. And, and that's what I think No Estimates is about. It's not just about estimates, but that's one big aspect. We can't go on throwing money in the garbage and calling it responsible action because we spent, I don't know, one third of the project looking at papers and trying to figure out how long the phrases in those papers would take to develop, you know, requirements and requirements documents. So do you think that the discussion is really an agile versus some form or flavor of waterfall and that's really where we're still at as an industry and that perhaps no estimates is an abstraction of that 30 or 40 year old argument so <clears throat> i i think you're on to something let me tell you another aspect of this that i think kind of builds on what you just said i think that estimation drives certain dysfunctions. I, I'm not saying that estimation is the only responsible for this dysfunction, but some of those, it's really the only responsible. And one of those, which I write about in the book, is the estimate bargaining. And estimate bargaining goes like this. Somebody comes to you, you're a team member, or even you're a project manager. It doesn't matter. You're responsible to give estimates to someone else. Somebody comes to you and say, hey, um, you guys are planning to deliver this in March, um, but we have this trade show at the end of February. You know, can't you guys just, you know, speed that up a little bit? Or it, it could be even this. We're late. Sorry, we're late. We're one month late. We're going to deliver in March. And then somebody says, what? Are you guys nuts? We, need, we have a trade show in February. We need the product out. And there's no argument. You guys need to start delivering more. Work overtime, you know, the good old myth of the pizza under the door until you get it done. And, <laughs> and this is an instance of Theory X. For those of you that aren't aware, this is a discussion and a dichotomy that comes from the book, um, The Human Side of the Enterprise by Douglas McGregor. 
This is a Theory X view. And what does Theory X say? Theory X is very simple. Theory X says all workers are lazy. They all want the best for themselves and the worst for the company. So the only way to exact quality out of a worker, to exact more productivity out of a worker, is to push them. And that's a very ingrained thinking behind this estimates mentality, especially in organizations where estimates become targets, right? And this is, I don't know about you, Ryan, probably you were lucky, but in my life, every single organization I've worked in, an estimate has become a target. So definitely in my past, I have worked in environments where the first estimate you gave is what you're held to no matter what. Even even if you learn something later, um, you are still going to be held to that to that target. So I, I definitely agree that, and I've I've only worked in uh, the Fortune 500 throughout my entire career. So I I've definitely seen it in multiple companies, all of them very large. And it, I think you're right; it is ingrained in in some of that culture that uh, it's just how management works. And I actually had the opportunity. There's a gentleman out there named uh, Ron Lichty who. There's a lot of work on management, especially management in an agile context. And he has a great point on this that talked about this a little bit on the podcast before, but it's worth mentioning again is that I've never taken more than a few days of training in management over my 16 year career, right? But I'm, but I'm now managing people. So if I don't proactively go out and look for different ways other than theory X, that's how I'm going to behave. And so there's a lot of that there's a lot of discussion that this is ingrained in people, that this is learned behavior, this is something that's passed down over and over and over. And so I, I definitely agree with you that these things do happen. Critics would argue that this is bad management, not bad estimation. How do you, how do you respond when you hear that, well, to me, horrible argument? Yeah, so I think I tweeted at some point about this. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. Every Every single improvement wave that has hit industry came as a result of a response to bad management. Lean came out of a a response to bad management, uh, so the Toyota production system that is. Agile came out of a response to bad management. Um, Theory of constraints came as out of a response to bad management. Bad management is 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 the bad guy, is the big bad wolf for every single improvement reason, improvement wave that has hit our industry. So, um, yeah, that's bad management. But yeah, that's life. We are hitting bad management all the time. Once we stop hitting bad management, then there's no reason to improve anything, right? If everybody would be perfect, then we wouldn't be talking about the dichotomy between theory X and theory Y. We wouldn't be talking about no estimates. We wouldn't be talking about uh, management 3.0. We wouldn't be talking about uh, applying complexity thinking to management like the Kinevin model. We wouldn't be talking about Kanban. I mean, bad management is just a fact of life. So, yeah, it's true. But so what? We need to deal with it. Well, I wonder if people forget, too, that, that Agile is a development play. It was you know, born of, you know, a a group of developers who met at a ski resort and who came up with a way for developers to, to create software in a more humane and reliable way. And so it's not surprising that these agile ideas and theories and and practices are developer centric, but time and time again, we see people reflectively responding to that idea as a negative, 
know, what are your thoughts on that? Is Agile a development a developer play? Is it really developer centric? And and is that all right for our industry? In your opinion, that's a very good question. Uh, I'm I'm looking for the article. Yeah. So Steve Denning, uh, writing on Forbes, writes the best kept management secret on the planet. And you know what it is? What's that? It's Agile. <laughs> okay. So, yes, it's true that uh, Agile came from uh, a developer-centric view of the world, right? A, a lot of the stuff we talk about, I mean, even the manifesto says, you know, delivering, running software regularly, often, and so on. So, obviously, it comes from that world, but the ideas we're talking about are not very different from the ideas that Lean talks about, which came from manufacturing they are not very different from the ideas that other improvement waves talk about, like uh, applying chaos and complexity theory to management and so on. So my point of view is that we are just, I have this, uh, I like to call it the mushroom theory of management, which is there's an underlying current of things happening that pop up in many different ma uh, manners. So one way is agile. That's one way it's popping up right now. Another way it is Lean, that's another way it's popping up. Management 3.0, another way it's popping up. And of course, no estimates is just another way it's popping up. And actually, that's one of the things that I, I have to come o back to uh, over and over again, is that for me, no estimates is a hashtag that uh, is the tip of the iceberg of a much, much deeper discussion that we need to have about what is an ethical humane and responsible way to work in the software industry. Because, I mean, I tell you the truth. I want my kids to be software developers. I want them to have a successful career in a software development organization because you probably agree, uh, that's at least my belief, in the future all organizations or at least you know a large percentage of organizations will be software-based. I mean, they will have a large part of their business model enabled by software. So I want to make sure that when my kids go to the software companies that they will work in, there will be answers to the questions that I had to deal with and for which there were no answers before. Like, for example, how to reliably deliver value to the market. And that's something we are trying to answer with no estimates. Uh, the no estimates discussion is not about, you know, when are we going to deliver this five-year roadmap? That's not what we're trying to answer. What we're trying to answer is, in the next five months, how much value can we deliver? Because then the next question is, which value should we deliver? And that's really where I would like to focus the discussion. And uh, I'm actually talking to product owners about no estimates to kind of figure that, that point of view as well. Because for me, no estimates is about going back to the value definition and the value-centric way of software development. Yeah, and that's where the focus I I believe should be. And that but I will say as we were talking earlier, the and so this is where I have some empathy for the people that are that for for the people who do not immediately get these ideas because it does take a while to wrap your brain around the idea that value comes first, just given that that how much cost and duration has been ingrained in the way that we do our work. And so I agree with you. I hope that my kids are able to have successful, you know, I have two little ones as well. Uh, they're, they're not quite old enough to be banging on a keyboard yet, but eventually they will be. And I, I hope they go on to have 
um, if they have the ambition in software, then they, they enter that world. I want it to be ethical and humane as well, right? And so that's definitely a concern of mine as I, and actually, it's funny you mentioned that. My kids are central to the majority of the presentations that I give all around the world at Agile conferences. So I make sure that they are the focal point because I do want them to come up in an ethical and um, well-intentioned and safe world. Safety to me is also very important. I do have empathy for the people who don't immediately get this because this is, in my opinion, an incredibly advanced Agile idea. And so the tip of the iceberg, as you noted, is the hashtag. And that's where we have some very light discussion. And I also think it's almost a, a laboratory as well where we throw some ideas out there, we're having a discussion, and not all, all of them are going to be right. And actually, a lot of the ideas could be wrong. And it seems that the idea of safety is playing out on the hashtag, right? So it's not safe to have a bad idea on that hashtag right now. There, it is not safe to say something that may or may not be right. And it's certainly not safe to come back and say, well, that idea is bad, let's try this one. And I see you're smiling and the viewers can't see that, but or the listeners can't see that. But um, I think that the element of safety and the ability to experiment openly has been compromised a bit in recent years. Would you agree with that? Oh, so, yeah, definitely agree with that. And uh, I want to uh, emphasize that no estimates is a result of experiments, right? The benefits I've gotten and the benefits that other people have gotten from using these ideas come from... A lot of failure, right? And that's one of the things that I, I want to emphasize is that failure is part of the learning process. This is why in Lean Startup we do build, measure, learn, right? Build something, measure it as quickly as you can, and then learn from it. And if we are not allowed to build, measure, learn, if, if most of our projects are build, 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 don't measure, don't learn, go on to build, 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 then how are we going to get our industry better, right? So that's really one of the key underlying threads in my thinking about no estimates and about product management and even about strategy deployment with agile methods is that we should be able to do this cycle. We should be able to go through build, measure, learn on a regular basis. And really the challenge that no estimates puts on the table is can you build that kind of cycle in your company? Can you enable your company to become a learning organization, which, by the way, is nothing new, right? This is another aspect of that mushroom theory of knowledge, is that or mushroom theory of management. Knowledge management and learning organizations is a very old topic, and no estimates. It's just another mushroom coming from that underground network of thoughts and ideas. You know, we were talking about earlier, you know, knowing everything up front, you know, knowing what you have to deliver, uh, knowing the cost and duration, that's classically called the iron triangle, right? So you're fixing scope, cost, and duration. In my experience, Agile does not live in an iron triangle. You cannot apply Agile in a situation where you have to know every uh, the scope, the cost, and duration up front, <clears throat> which to me would mean that no estimates would not apply as well. And so what, I, what I'm seeing, and I'm curious if you're seeing this too, is that people are taking these traditional ideas such as knowing your scope and your cost and your, and your duration up front and then trying to, to manipulate that idea, that approach into an agile focus and then absurdly trying to do no estimates. Is that a, a fair characterization or am I being too harsh? 
Well, so that's how I started. Uh, I think it is fair characterization, but that's how I started No Estimates. I, I was in that world. As I said, I was a traditional project manager. So I've been in that situation. I have had to live with the R and triangle. Uh, but you said something that I wanted to expand on. You said um, Agile does not live in the R and triangle. So uh, in the book, uh, there's one interview with the, uh, Sven Ditz, CEO of a German software development organization, and uh, he talks about how they now, today, go to their customers without any estimates. And they're just open to them. Say, They say, basically, you don't know what you want. We don't know how, it, how long it will take to do something that you don't know what. So let's just collaborate. Here's the ideas that we have about how to achieve your business objectives. You tell us if these are the right things or not, and then we go on. But we deliver value every two weeks. And when you're tired, and if you think that we're not adding value, you just kick us out. No contract needed. We work based on trust. Now, this is a guy that owns a company, right? He's not playing with other people's money. He's actually playing with his own money. If he loses, he loses his own money, his own reputation. And what he says in the interview is that before this uh, adoption of no estimates, they, they call it raw estimates, and I think it's, it's worthwhile watching the video to figure out what that means, but uh, they said that they were spending 20 to 30% of their time in bid-related activities. So contract negotiations, uh, estimations, uh, back and forth on the bid, etc. And they said that the moment they went on to raw estimates, uh, which is a variant of no estimates. They stopped doing that. And guess what? Now, and he says that on the video, it's on record, they are losing less money than they were when they were doing estimates. And what he means by that is that the time they save, the time and money they save by not having to go through long contract negotiations, long bid processes, is much bigger than the risk they have by not having a binding contract with their clients. And everybody's happy. It's a, it, this is the illustration of a win-win relationship that came about by following the no estimates ideas. So this is a, a business owner who's embraced this idea <clears throat> and has turned around and become successful with it. And that it sounds like you know, wildly successful as, as far as the impact to the bottom line and he's able to still find clients willing to work this way. Absolutely. Of course, he also says in the video that not all your clients will be willing to accept this. So you have to, you know, be with your eyes wide open in that sense. So don't, don't try to do this with customers you already know will say no. There's no point in doing that. But uh, yeah, they, they got started with one particular customer and then they, they trusted the method and then they found other customers and they continued. And he tells a great story about a project they, they won based on this method with a customer they never worked for before. So I wonder if the ethical way going forward for companies that are in this estimation world is to explicitly note on their invoices the hours that were spent for estimation and bidding. So showing the customer exactly how much they're spending on the estimation versus the development. I think you're on to something there, Ryan. That might actually be a very good way to raise the discussion and to be honest and transparent. See, and if I'm a, if I'm a customer, I think I would want that number. I would want to know that 20 to 30% of my bill in your last example was spent on negotiation of contracts and on uh, the estimation of work and on things that added 
little to no value to the actual product we're trying to deliver. That's significant. 20 to 30%. That's a few orders of magnitude, isn't it? Yeah. So uh, 20 to 30% would be the easy part to recover, right? If you stop doing that part, you get it all back immediately and potentially even improve the trust with your customer, assuming that they are willing to accept this idea and you have to be careful about this. So that's where it starts. But then when you focus on value, then you have another uh, lever of value production for you and for your customer because now we are not tied to a backlog or to a list of features that is written on a contract. We can actually work with the client to find out what is more valuable at every point in the contract. And from the client point of view, we can stop the contract earlier than was thought and reduce the spend on that particular project. Well, and that is one of the promises of Agile, right? So that's even explicitly in the manifesto that the art of the work not done is, I'm going to get this wrong, but it's the work not done is, 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 is important. And I think that gets lost in a lot of these scenarios where we have to know all the capabilities up front. And then we have to estimate all the, the capabilities up front. We have to know the cost and duration up front. Well, then how do we not do work, <laughs> right? How do, we, how do we get down to, you know, the, the minimally viable product is, is a loaded phrase, you know, the MVP, but I think it's important. How do we get down to that slice of this request that adds immediate value and then build on that? But how do you do that if you're constantly haggling over a contract, you know, we said we would deliver this at this cost, but we know that now there's something better. How do we do that transition effectively? And I, you know, those ideas certainly do resonate. When you run into a client, though, who simply will not work in that way, where they still want the estimate, they still want the, and I think there's a valid point here. There is still the perception that there is an, there's insurance created through an estimate, <clears throat> right? There's a, an implied art our development will not exceed this cost or will not exceed this date. And I think in some domains that's actually valuable. Is the answer don't take on that work or is the answer we still work in that way? Well, so there's two parts to that answer. Let me start with the first part. Being accurate in estimates is extremely difficult and our industry is not able to do it reliably. Of the large systems that are completed, about 66% experience schedule delays and cost overruns. Of traditional projects, 53%, according to Scott Ambler's project success survey, 53% were failed or challenged. And it wasn't much better for agile projects because it was 40% failed or challenged. So if we look at the actual data, the first uh, honest answer is, we might want to give you an estimate, you might want to have an estimate, but you must understand that the estimate might be 60 to 100% wrong, and that's normal in our industry. That's not being bad at estimates, that's just being average at estimates, right? Right. If you're ready to accept being 100% wrong with an estimate, then go right ahead. You're not losing much except the time you spend estimating. But if you don't have that luxury, and in the case of software development firms for which the margins are very thin, especially if you are, for example, uh, an offshore shop that, you are, that are doing custom projects for a large company, uh, your margins are not going to be that high. So would you bet a project that has a margin maybe of 15 to 20% on a tool that gives an accuracy of easily 
minus 100%, that wouldn't be a very smart business decision, I think. Yeah, and I think that argument coupled with showing the expense of estimation on the invoice, I think that is that goes a long way to to at least getting a few of your, your customers or clients to think about working in a different way. And if there truly are some constraints, and I know that um, some people on, on the No Estimates hashtag, they do raise some interesting points where you have organizational alignment, the dependency argument that we talked about, or there are some other <clears throat> important factors in the company, then at least from my point of view, by all means do an estimate and at least try to line it up, but then throw it away and, and work in and work in a more reasonable manner. But at least you 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 know where roughly the milestones are. And if you do have a fixed date, you can still work in this manner, right? So if date is fixed, we can still work backwards and get to that date in in a safe way. Would you agree with that? Yeah, actually, um, the book uh, that I wrote, the No Estimates book, how to predict uh, project delivery dates without estimating, actually goes through the process that I used when I was starting out to communicate with stakeholders, establish those dependencies, and actually be reliable on the delivery. Because really, the problem is not that you give an estimate. Of course, sometimes you must give an estimate, and that's it. You know, live with it. But you don't need to follow the estimate on the day-to-day -day execution. We need to find better ways to actually deliver on what's, what was thought to be the estimate, but in reality will change because, uh, you know, things like scope creep, which I like to call value discovery, happen in a project, right? <laughs> so right. if you discover value, it would be really a bad idea to say no to it because it doesn't fit the estimate. Nobody would even think about it. Well, there's a consequence to that, and the consequence is that you have to cut some other things out. So that gives us one of the tools that Carmen, the main character in the book, uh, starts to use, which is active scope management, right? That's one of the key aspects of no estimates, as I practice it, is to look at a project as a, uh, a, a manager of mine once said, a project is a bucket, not a balloon, i.e., you know, when the water gets to the top of the bucket, it starts to flow out. But many people still think to still um, try to manage projects as if they were balloons. I, you just put more stuff in and it expands and it expands and it expands, right? That's not the right metaphor. A bucket is a much better metaphor. There's a certain capacity for a project and you must try to fit the stuff that is valuable into that capacity. So the real, the big questions are, what is valuable and what is my capacity? And that's what I've been writing about. That's what the book talks about. It's, those are really the two key questions for us. What is valuable? What is my capacity? And let me pose a third question and see what you think of it. So what is valuable? What is our capacity? And do I trust the team to deliver it? Absolutely. Because I, I, I find that if you go back to Theory X, you know, that, which is a lot of what's driving this discussion, as you mentioned earlier. If you don't trust the team, then Theory X makes complete sense. Get the estimate and drive them into the ground until they hit that estimate. But if you trust the team, that whole dynamic changes as well. Absolutely. Trust is a very important part <clears throat> of any software project, and, and hence why I very often come back to this main message that no estimates is really just another tip of the iceberg of our attempt to build a business that is ethical and responsible. Yep. So on the no estimates hashtag, and I, I want to be aware of the time here, so I want to make sure we don't go over, but 
on the no estimates hashtag, just uh, two questions around that discussion. The first one is around the the critics. <clears throat> so the critics are very active. There's a few. There is a very vocal minority on that hashtag who is um, some would say relentless, but they do have some questions that they raise over and over. In your view, and in your experience in dealing with the critics, what's the best question that they're asking that deserves the most attention? So the question that I care about is, do we really have a way to define value? And I think it comes up in the no estimates discussion, perhaps not so obviously, but in many of the exchanges is that we are really struggling to define a method that goes around value when we don't actually know the definition of value. So that's one of the things that I do with my teams and my clients is to spend a reasonable amount of time working around the definition of value. For example, how do you translate your company strategies to the projects or epics that you are working on? Do you actually have metrics that validate that the epics that you're working on, the features, the stories you're working on, actually have a positive impact on your company's strategy and business goals? And, you know, if we don't have that, if we don't have a way to measure you know, we're missing a key part of the build, measure, learn cycle, because if you can't measure, you can't learn. So we're just build, 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 right? And that's why I go back to this point. And I actually do this in the workshop. Um, just a very quick example. In the workshop, I asked the, the students to uh, develop and uh, prepare a deployment plan for a complete IT ticketing system. I mean, you know, a system where you put in a, a request for help and somebody in IT will process it and, you know, call you or give you a new PC, whatever. That's, that's it. That's the assignment. And I give them, you know, five, six use cases, more or less. I say, you have half an hour to develop that system. And I don't mean, like, think about how to develop it. I mean, like, really develop it. And prepare a deployment plan that can be executed in less than 24 hours. IT ticketing systems are projects that take six plus months in most IT organizations. Six plus months. Well, they, the students in the workshop, they do it in half an hour. In half an hour, they develop a complete IT ticketing system and they prepare a deployment plan that would uh, work in a multinational company and could be executed in less than 24 hours. And what we do is very simple. The, the term that I use is slice for value. Very often we end up discussing technology. We just want to, you know, deliver more features, more technology. But in reality, what our customers need, what the customers of our businesses need is value. So we need to figure out how do we deliver value? And that's really the key question. Once we are able to do that, then the next question is, what's the next most valuable thing, right? Because now you know what value is. And I guess the last question about the hashtag would be, what is the big disconnect because there is, there's a lot of talking past people. There's a lot of misconceptions. There's a lot of assumptions. What do you think is the biggest misconception that causes the gaps in the discussions? Uh, well, that's a very good question. And I don't know if this is the cause, but one of the things that I worry about is that we very often use context to excuse the lack of attempt to change the world we live in. We say, it won't work in my context. Well... When Agile got started, when I got started with Agile in 2004, Agile didn't work in my context. And guess what? Now it does. We changed the context so that we could reap the benefits of the Agile way of working. 
that's one of the messages that Agile brought to the software world that we are very often, unfortunately, forgetting, is that Agile is not a contextualist approach, is not something that tries to fit in every context. Agile is a context-changing approach. The idea of delivering software regularly, early, and often is a context-changing approach. Once you get to continuous delivery, a lot of the problems we face today disappear. They purely disappear. They are dissolved by that method of working. But you can't experience that until you get to continuous delivery. So if you've never experienced continuous delivery, you will say, well, it won't work in my context. But the fact is that if you try it and you learn, you might actually build a completely different context. And that's what I'm trying to do, not just with no estimates, also with the the ideas that I'm bringing to the product management world, the ideas that I'm bringing to Agile as a strategy deployment tool, i.e. that links company management to -to day-to-day execution and does not build the gap, does not create and enlarge the gap between these two parts of the organization, which is nothing new. It already came from Lean. That's what I'm trying to say, is that we need to look for ways that effectively make our world a better place, not that fits to our dysfunctional world, but actually make our world a better place. I think that's what we're all striving to do. So that's that's a great note for us to end on. You know, at this point, I usually, uh, or I like to ask my guests, is there anything you'd like to plug? Is there anything you have going on? Any conferences coming up? Obviously, we're going to uh, put a link to the to the No Estimates book in the show notes if you'd like to talk that up a little bit more. But anything that you would like to promote or, or present to the audience at this point, uh, we'd love to hear about it. So I would like to promote dialogue and evolution. And um, I'm going to leave a book as a reference. It's not my book. I mean, you all know that my book is the noestimatesbook.com by now. But the book is called Team of Teams by General McChrystal. It's an amazingly insightful book that touches on many, many of the topics that underlie the discussion that comes up as no estimates at the tip of the mushroom network, as I like to call it. So I would definitely recommend that. It's an incredibly insightful, incredibly well-written book that talks about many of the things that I think can power a better software industry. That's great. So I appreciate that book reference. We'll get that in the show notes. Vasco, anything else to close on? Well, Ryan, I want to thank you very much for your uh, generosity to invite me on your show. It's been a pleasure and I would like to uh, reciprocate and invite you on my show as well. Uh, So I hope that we have a chance soon enough to interview, interview you on the Scrum Master Toolbox podcast. I uh, I accept. It'll be a lot of fun. Uh, the Scrum Master uh, Toolbox podcast is uh, something else that Vasco does. I listen to every episode. It's a great 15-minute uh, or so uh, look at what uh, makes a good Scrum Master. A lot of different angles, a lot of different guests. It is on my is on my must-listen list, so we'll get a link to that as well. It's a, it's a wonderful podcast specifically focused on uh, Scrum Masters. And so if you are a Scrum Master, it's definitely one that you should be listening to. That and Amatize Agile in three minutes. Those are, those are the two that uh, I always make sure I listen to along with a few others. But uh, Vasco, you got a great product there as well. Thank you very much, Ryan. And I'm your host, Ryan Ripley. Thank you again for joining us. This is, uh, it's always humbling when I go out to 
the hosting site and see the, just the number of downloads and, and how many of you are listening and telling your friends and, and passing the word along. Uh, we keep breaking our download records month over month, and that's squarely because of all of you out there listening and supporting the show. So I'm incredibly humbled that you guys do that and can't thank you enough. This month I have no plugs, just, again, thanking you for uh, being out there. Thank you for listening. Thank you for spreading the message. And I hope that all of you take these no-estimate ideas Think through them, give them a shot, and perhaps they can help you too make your world a better place. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to Agile for Humans. Let's keep the conversation going. Drop us a question on Twitter at Agile for Humans or visit agileforhumans.com. Hey, it's Ryan. If you're enjoying this show and want to take a deeper dive into Scrum with me and Todd, check out agileforhumans.com forward slash training. Be sure to also look at the show notes to subscribe to our newsletter, get a copy of our book, Fixing Your Scrum, and learn more about working with us at Agile for Humans. Thanks for listening and Scrum on.